Clinical research development has long been targeted as an area of opportunity for pharmaceutical companies to find more efficient methods of adoption in order to drive success in commercializing a product and making it available to patients. Welcome to High Five, hosted by Vynamic, where we bring you information and insights on topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath, Healthcare Industry Advisor at Vynamic, and on today's episode, we're diving into the topic of clinical trials and how innovation is making its way into this critical function within a pharmaceutical organization. To help us explore this topic, friend of Vynamic, Amy Nordo, is joining us today. Amy has many years of experience in both clinical care, academia, and industry. She's also published a multitude of studies on this related topic and has dedicated her career to advancing clinical research informatics. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Amy, before we jump into actually talking about data and e-source, I want to ask you just what your thoughts are. If I were to say, is there one thing in healthcare that you would like to change, what would that be? So Mindy, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for improvement in healthcare. Um, but if I have to pick one, I would say transparency. And, and this isn't just transparency between clinicians, right? Because we need to be get better at sharing patients' data among sites and among clinicians. And there's a lot of really great work that's going on in this space. It's also transparency of sharing data between clinical care and clinical research. And I'm really encouraged by some work that's being done in this space uh, for this also. It's also sharing patients' data back, not just from clinical care to patients, but also clinical research data back to the patient. And that's why I think eSource is so important because it does help and begin to allow this transparency to be a little bit more efficient. So you've been in academia and in industry for some time within the clinical trial development space. Um, before we jump into some of the innovative ways that the industry is actually starting to approach clinical research, can you talk to me a little bit, bit about the current state of clinical development in informatics? Yeah, you know, there for the last past 60 years, the cost of clinical trials development has increased exponentially. And the current state, it takes approximately $2.6 billion. That's billion with a B. Um, and about 12 to 15 years to bring a therapy to market. So if we just pause there um, and look at where the market is to begin with, and what we're trying to do, it's to bring breakthrough therapies to patients who need them. And these patients are us. Mm, yep. They're you and I. They're our families. They're our friends. They're our neighbors. And a lot of times, these therapies are the um, best option maybe for somebody to use. And it's not just about their quality of life. Sometimes their life in general depends on it. So if we look at the landscape of healthcare in general, we know this is an industry that's rapidly changing. Historically, clinical care and clinical research have been viewed separately. And I was talking in the beginning about um, getting transparency across both of them. Um, and now we're starting to view that healthcare from the patient's perspective. And we're starting to realize that clinical care and clinical research is both an option 
for the patient. And clinical research is actually a care option, if you will, for a patient. Um, and so they shouldn't be separate as they have been up until now. And we're seeing this bridging, if you will, of clinical care and clinical research. And with that bridging, there's an opportunity to reuse this data. Instead of collecting data, the same data points from the same patients and using them for clinical care and clinical research, collecting the data once and then reusing that data. So the secondary use of what I'll call EHR data, electronic healthcare record data, um, for both the patient's clinical care and to also be used in uh, patients when they choose to be a part of clinical research. So we've already been using this. This is a misnomer a lot of people don't realize. We've already been using this data for clinical research for a very long time, back to when I was a clinical research coordinator. But we did this in a very uh, manual process. And so the data was collected from the EHR and retyped into the EDC system. And so we're looking with eSource to make this a more efficient pathway. So you mentioned eSource, and I'm wondering if you can just expand on what exactly eSource is and what it does. Yeah, that's a great question. So eSource is a very broad definition, and um, oftentimes the conversation gets confused because people are looking at it from a different perspective. The FDA looks at it as electronic data source, and that's incredibly broad. Um, Transcelerate Biopharma, they um, have uh, characterized it into basically four different criteria. One is that secondary use of EHR data that I was speaking about before. One of them is uh, wearables and apps. Uh, one of the pieces that um, is also in there is what I'd call non-CRF data, mm -hmm. so like administrative data that you could collect. And then there's also a portion of it where it's um, central labs. Labs, when we instead of going to your doctor's office to get it drawn, you may um, go to a, um, a vendor to get the labs drawn. And so that would, that would move, the data would move a little diff bit differently depending upon those four areas. Um, that we're in. But, but as I said before, a lot of this is very, very manual. And so what we're looking at, and there's a great opportunity that's out there right now, which is to use standards. Um, and when I mean standards, I mean standards that are developed, ANSI certified standards developed by a standards development organization, um, and, and specifically the HL7's Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, to move this data. And this is already occurring on the clinical side of the house. So what we're looking at here is how can we reuse, right, not only the data that's collected, but the pathways that are being built, mm -hmm. the roads that are being built to exchange data from the clinical side of the house to clinical research. So instead of doing this manual piece, we're going to now be able to electronically exchange the data. Some people call it automagically, um, but it's a little more than that. And it's based on standards, which allows it to be transferable to all of the organizations that are compliant with this standard. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you talked a little bit about the secondary use of EHR data. Um, what, what do you think the future state of that looks like? This is going to change. The paradigm is going to change completely, to be, to be honest with this. Um, so, so let's start back with where we're at right now. Um, and I'll tell you the best case scenario of current state. Best case scenario goes back to Landon Bain, and he called it the swivel chair methodology. And so what that is is a coordinator will typically have two screens in front of them. And in the two screens, one will be the EHR, 
and one will be an EDC. And they'll look at the EHR, and you cannot cut and paste from an EHR. And there's very good reasons for this on the clinical side of the house, so that's appropriate. But what that makes you have to do then is then turn and type it into the EDC. Now, I think we all are aware that we all make typos, right? Mm -hmm. And so this now introduces errors, and the error rate is much larger than I think people realize um, in that transcribing of the data. I told you that's the best case scenario. In reality, what's happening in many sites is we're still using paper for clinical research. Really? Yeah. So what's happening is we're looking in the EHR. One person is writing it down on a paper form of the, the ECRF, which you can just imagine people's handwriting. You run out of space. You turn the paper over. You turn it sideways. Then those pile up. Somebody else comes along, another person takes those papers, sits down, tries to figure out what the person says. If they can't figure out what the person says, they look in the EHR. If they still can't figure it out, now they've got to go find the person who maybe they went to lunch or they're with a cl in clinic with a patient or who, who knows where they're at, um, has to wait for them. And then they're actually typing it into the EDC. Imagine the amount of errors that are possible there. Mm -hmm. so, so that's where we're at currently. So I think it's pretty clear that there's, there's a better way. Yes. Huge opportunity, it sounds like, <laughs> to actually improve efficiency and accuracy. And that's really what we're looking at here. And timeliness. Timeliness mm -hmm. is a big piece of this because when we're looking at this data, it's taking quite a bit of time for us to get the data over to uh, the sponsor. And we want to be seeing this data in as close to real time as possible because it allows us to shorten that 12 to 15 year time span. But it also allows us, and the most important piece that it allows us to do, is it allows us to monitor patient safety in more real time. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to be able to develop breakthrough therapies to patients for their lives. So where I see that we're going to go with this is it's going to become much more patient-centric, where patients and clinicians are go both going to be collecting data. Sensors and devices are going to be collecting data. All this data will be uh, put together so that clinicians can be reviewing it and patients can be reviewing it in almost near real time. Um, that way, if there's any clinical relevance to this data, um, it can be acted upon. And then that data is going to be exchanged automatically or electronically, maybe using something like a fire standard, over into uh, the sponsor's side systems, systems like an electronic data capture system. Got it. So I'm curious. I mean, this sounds like future state sounds amazing to me. Why hasn't this happened yet? And when you think about what the challenges are of getting there, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so eSource is not a new concept. It's been around for, for about 20 years. It started out with a, a study called Starbright. And back then, there were some great standards, um, and one of them was retrieve form data capture. And this was a standard that used something called a continuity care document to exchange data. Now, a continuity of care document, in, in a very colloquial way, is, is like a suitcase, right? You put certain data points into it, um, and then exchange it across. And this is what um, we used in the first uh, uh, study that I did. The challenge with um, a continuity care document, a CCD, is um, there's actually one joke in standards, um, and it's if you've seen one CCD, you've seen one CCD. And unfortunately, it's incredibly true, because um, what I found was uh, at the institution we were in, um, doing this research at, there were 23 different CCDs 
None of them had what I requested, which is like the kitchen sink CCD. Just put it all in there and I'll redact it on the other side. Um, and so, and from site to site, they didn't have the same 23 CCDs. So there's no way you can scale this. Um, and so that's kind of what has been holding this back. I think what's changing now are two main focuses. One, there's a concept called learning health systems. Um, or if you want, you could call it the bridging or clinical research as a care option. And basically, it's breaking down those two silos between, between clinical research and clinical care. And so as that happens, more and more of the data is being collected in the, for clinical research is being collected in the EHR. And if you remember, I told you we were already using the data in, from the EHR, the electronic health record, for clinical research, but now it's going kind of back the other way. Anything that would be considered clinically relevant in clinical research would appear for the clinicians to see. So I think that's the first piece, right, that we're starting to put these two pieces together. And then the second piece is, okay, if you have all the data in there, you still need to get it out without that lovely manual process, and that's where FIRE comes in. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's tons of jokes we can say here. We can say, um, you know, the U.S. is on fire. We can say we're blazing a path forward uh, using fire for clinical research. But, but it, is truly, it, it truly is a disruption and a positive disruption to uh, clinical care and clinical research. And so it's allowing us to have a much easier streamlined pathway that we can build off of. This is a true ANSI SDO uh, standard um, for the exchange of data. And it, because we're using both, it brings them together. Can I just ask you to clarify for listeners, SDO? Oh, yes, of course. An SDO is a standards development organization. There are several out there you may have heard of, HL7, Health mm -hmm. Level 7, ISO, CDISC. Those are some of the ones that are out there. Terrific. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about scalability and collaboration? Because we're talking about an industry, right, that has historically not necessarily always been the most collaborative when it comes to trying to do things among, you know, pharma companies. I wouldn't limit it just to pharma companies. That's and not providers, always. right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, and I think um, the, the shift here is um, patients owning their data, right? So that's, that's where the shift starts here. But when we started to work on this, um, we realized that we understood it the box up until the site's firewall. This is when I worked at a site. And then the rest of it was kind of the black box that we didn't know. And I think that's kind of what the, now being on the industry side, it's the same thing. We understand it up to the site's firewall, and then it becomes a black box. So the only way that we're going to be able to come up with a true process that's going to work is an end-to-end -end process, truly, from patient having the data, to collecting the data, to exchanging the data, all the way across to, to surfacing up to the regulatory agencies like FDA, is we've got to bring all the stakeholders to the table, which is a challenge, in, to be honest, but it's really exciting because I see it happening. And the SCDM, the Society for Clinical Data Management, is now has an e-source consortium. And it's made up of um, sites and sponsors. And so it's allowing us to work together. There are other consortium. There's a Data Fits consortium. HL7's doing a lot of work in this space. And we're bringing them all together. So I'm really encouraged because everybody's at the table now Everybody has a clear focus on wanting to make this happen, and, um, and that is what's going to drive us toward getting this to be 
scalable, and reproducible. That is amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm like so encouraged to hear that just because being in the industry for so long and seeing how difficult it has been traditionally to drive collaboration, it's really encouraging to hear that, that people are at the table and recognizing that there's an opportunity here to just make something so much better in the end that benefits everyone. Yeah, and it really does benefit everyone, right? I mean, look from the site's perspective, you know, the study that I did um, with some of my colleagues at My St. Elsewhere, we found a 37% time savings if we auto-populated seven out of 401 fields. That's 1.75% of the data. That's a 37% time savings. That's amazing. Yes, and there's been other research that has been conducted. Uh, Kitchell et al. showed that they were getting the data uh, transported over to the sponsor and less than 24 hours. Um, and so there's a lot of other studies that are also showing these benefits for all of the stakeholders. And, and so I think that's why people are willing to come together and work together on this is because there is a benefit for this to each of us and yeah. most importantly to the patient right right and I was going to ask I mean some listeners I think might be wondering um, when you're talking through this it takes a lot of time money resource right to to drive this type of collaboration so in the end you know is the effort going to be worth it and if so why and I think you've just touched on some of that is that benefit to the patient but are there other elements to that that you think you know in times when it gets a little bit difficult um, or you start to question whether we're going to get there um, is the effort worth it in your mind yeah without a doubt you know so I, re I remember being a clinical research coordinator back in the day when we wrote on paper and we had an old rickety um bookshelf and I was putting away a huge binder I don't even know if they sell binders this big and um, the shelves broke and the binders opened and the papers went all over and I was sitting on the floor trying to put these binders back together and I thought to myself there has got to be a better way and so you know it's taken a long time to get to this better way but I definitively think that the, the effort is going to be worth it. Because while there's, you know, a ramp up for this, right, to get us there to instantiate this, I think the, the return on the investment, the economies of scale that will come from this are going to be really great. And remember, I told you it takes $2.6 billion to bring uh, a therapy to market in 12 to 15 years. We're recollecting data, which means we're making patients sometimes go through um, therapies or blood draws or things like that more than one time. And um, and so there's just so many opportunities here to make this more efficient. Sharing the data across um, with the patients in the clinical care, collecting it once, making it more expedited, getting it over into our regulators in a way that's easier for them to look at. It, it just goes all the way across. So I, I think as we look at this and we see the research that exists out there now to show the efficiencies, I think once we have it all the way in place, it's going to be much greater the return than we even expected. Well, this is fascinating. And um, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us and help us understand a little bit more around what's going on in the e-source world. Uh, definitely would love to check in, uh, you know, a year from now and see how much further along you've gotten because it sounds like there's a lot of, of really great momentum. Absolutely. And feel free to join us at the uh, SEDM uh, conference this September and uh, for the eSource Roundtable. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Amy. Of course.
that a fantastic interview. To recap what we heard from Amy, I'm joined by some of my colleagues and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel, our provider sector advisor. Hi, everybody. And Kaylee Tolley and Matthew Howard, our dynamic duo who have been living this innovative effort for some time. So thanks for joining us, guys. Hello, hello. Thank you for having us. So I want to get to an idea that Amy spoke around the swivel chair concept because um, it really struck me when she used that terminology, like the visual that I could see as she was talking about the swivel chair effect that happens and the inefficiency that it breeds in terms of data capture and the process and really just that potential for error and inf- inefficiency and how high that, that can be. So I'm just curious from, from your standpoint, Matt and, and Kaylee, since you've been living in the eSource world for a while, how do you think eSource actually tackles this swivel chair effect? Well, I first want to highlight something that Amy mentioned around the swivel chair approach. That makes it easy to understand how complex it is, right? You have one computer with the EHR opened up and another with the EDC. But what Amy was explaining is that in reality, there are so many more steps in that process before it moves from the EHR to the EDC. So you might have someone first capturing it in the EHR, then they are have the printed out versions, printed out copies of the case report forms that reflect what's in the EDC, but they're writing that down on paper, they're passing it to someone else, and then they are manually enter, entering that in to the EDC. So you might think it's as simple as just turning the chair, But in reality, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to finally get it into the EDC. So it just, what I'm trying to highlight here is the process is very, very complicated to get data from one point to the next. And with eSource, you basically eliminate all of those steps. And it can very easily move from one system to the next. And that means for a, let's say, a site coordinator they can spend more time, or the PI, the um, investigator, spend more time with the patient. Um, you're reducing data quality errors. Um, so there's so many advantages to being able to do it. Um, so it's it's a huge opportunity. And to build on that, the process that you talked about being so complicated, it takes a long time, too. And so the value of eSource is also condensing the timeline of getting that data into the EDC because, like you said, that swivel chair is really the best-case scenario. A lot of times it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I, I, it's so interesting to me as, you know, from a, a maybe a more broader lens for both of you is that the swivel chair effect is – it's funny that we're using that term, and it's probably a little bit more complicated than swivel chair, but providers have to utilize the swivel chair for many things, not just clinical trials and clinical research. You know, whether it's adjudicating claims or any other disparate system that they're using, it many times happens daily that there are different and added steps that you have to go from one system or one computer system to another. So to be able to eliminate that and mitigate that on a very important um, a very important topic is going to help prioritize that in the, in the health system world. Yeah, and another aspect that struck me was um, when Amy was talking about this wall that's traditionally existed between clinical care and clinical research, 
And um, Ryan, as the provider sector advisor, I'm curious about how you think providers would respond to Amy's point that clinical research is an option for patients as part of their clinical care. Great question. And I have <clears throat> been noodling on this for a while because I thought Amy brought such a great um, thought to this. And I would say that she mentioned that they are an option. I would, I would probably argue that they could be an option, or it could be could be in the driver's seat. I think right now, as we as we see the way the patient and providers interact holistically, um, there is so much information that has to be um, communicated from the provider or from these folks to the patient that they don't. I don't know if they actually recognize and realize that what their role is in that, and that it's that the, that it is actually an active part of their clinical care. To me, when she was talking about it, about patients, are, they, they do have the option to in, inject clinical research into their clinical care. My argument is they may have it theoretically and academically, but are they being offered that in a understandable, tangible way today? And I don't know if that's the, mm. the truth. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work going on around that entire piece, that patient-centric piece, and getting them the information that they need to be able to make clinical research part of their care and so that they can understand it. There's a lot of work going on in that outside of eSource as well. Yeah, and I think that out of all of the things that has to happen in a visit, um, I'm wondering how we fit that into the provider-patient window so that they are aware of and they could capitalize on that option. And in our experience with working with health systems and IDNs, providers are being cut time with patients versus getting time added to their visits. So how are they squeezing in this very important piece of that into the discussion so that patients know to ask the right questions about clinical research as part of their clinical care protocol? Yeah, and the other thing that I thought was interesting um, as we were listening to Amy talk about this too, was um, when you think about the number of collaborations that are in the market, to me it was actually remarkable. Like I, I think I was always of the, the observation that um, the healthcare industry does not naturally collaborate with one another. Either it's driven by you know, misalignment of incentives, um, but, but Amy's point was there's actually a lot of collaborations going on. And so I wonder what stands out to you with some of the collaborations and the opportunities and the challenges that exist? So I think you're right that there are a lot of collaborations going on, but that's part of the problem is that there are a lot of collaborations going on. And so when we think of healthcare here at Dynamic and we're talking about the interwoven sectors, we see that very much on this eSource program because we're working from the pharma side on this and we're working with sites to make sure that it's going to work for them. There's also health healthcare tech firms that need to be part of this to make this connection happen. And then we also need to connect with academic institutions and the research that's going on that prove the validity and the value of this work. And so we see all of those different pieces coming together. But there's so much variability in how each of these organizations on every side of it do things and also what standards they're using. So the standards organizations have to be a part of this conversation as well 
So there are a lot of people working on it from a lot of different angles, but trying to get the alignment is far more challenging than getting the collaboration. Because what one pharmaceutical company does, if another pharmaceutical company is doing it in an entirely different way, but they're going to the same site, how is that site going to handle their processes if they're being asked to do it in far different ways? So it's trying to move. We're trying to go little by little, um, eat the elephant one bite at a time, as Kaylee says, or not trying to boil the ocean. But to some degree, we still have to have those macro conversations about where should this go in the future to get that alignment in a broader sense. Yeah, you hit that nail on the head, Matt. There's a lot of excitement going on in the industry, and it's bringing all the right folks together and and collaborating successfully. I think one of the big reasons why we are seeing this shift, though, and you have folks from different areas finally coming together and talking about this, is because the FDA recently in the past few years finally provided some guidance on eSource. And that has... I think generated that momentum and it's really now a matter of giving this that macro look to make sure that we're doing it successfully, we're doing it right, we are following the right standards so that we're implementing it nearly the same way every single time. I also think that there was a lot of learnings that went on when the industry moved to EDCs um, or EHRs because a lot of those systems they just slammed existing processes into electronic systems and there wasn't a ton of reorganization on the process or improvement of the process in that. And that's something that we're trying to do differently this time around, really improve the process to work with the technology instead of just making the technology work because the regulations say the technology needs to work. Well, a podcast would not be complete here if we did not mention electronic health records. So let's chat about the EHR because um, it's rapidly becoming the epicenter, right, of many things that are data-related in the healthcare industry. What are your thoughts on how eSource actually stays current or the eSource efforts stay current with the evolution of electronic health records, because that's another aspect to it, right? We have some major EHR vendors out there that are continuously building out their capabilities with these EHRs. Um, How does the e-source effort maintain kind of pace with the different types of evolutions of EHR systems? I think there's a lot of different work going on here. So you have pragmatic clinical trials that are trying to bring the clinical care side closer to the clinical research side or vice versa. Because right now, the even the data that they collect and the manner in which they collect it for those two systems is so disparate. And that's been one of the challenges of creating a scalable solution is that every EHR is unique unto itself, as is every EDC. So how do you get these customizable, configurable solutions to work on a broad scale has been one of the biggest challenges in finding a scalable solution. Amy talked about the RFD and CCDs yesterday, um, and that was that's one of the challenges, right? So there's pragmatic clinical trials, common protocol templates on um, streamlining things from the research side. I was, I was going to say what's interesting that you brought up, Matt, is the idea, and Mindy, you alluded to it, 
you know, we talk a lot about EHRs in these podcasts and the fact that <clears throat> it's a fragmented industry, but there are three to four, maybe five big players, and that are that creates um, that creates some ambiguity in the, in the health ser- of, of how we report things like outcomes. But even within the health system, if you have one EHR, there are still disparate ways it is utilized across the health system. And if you overlay that, the fragmented EDCs and the uh, ability to have another piece of software or another vendor that, that or vendors that overlay over that EHR, it creates even more complexity to something you are trying to simplify. And that just it gives me like, you know, both excitement about how what you are all working on, but it also gives me like, oh, it's just another barrier for us to, to, to streamline something, right? So this... Um just made me think of something that I did want to mention. Um, so the ONC has uh, certification requirements that all you know EHRs um, must comply to. And the original ONC certification requirements um, highlighted that EHRs must be able to use APIs, application program- programming interfaces. It's such a long word or uh, phrase. And so APIs will allow you to essentially exchange information. What is interesting is that with the 21st Century Cures Act, they are enhancing those um, certification requirements. So not only must you be able to share data via APIs, the requirement is that you follow the FHIR standards. And as Amy talked about, Fire is a huge enabler for us to be able to use eSource and exchange that data electronically between a site that is using an EHR and the sponsor that is using their EDC and, and need that study information. And Kaylee, to build upon that, I think what Fire also helps with is gives us a tool to use the variable site architecture that exists because every site is going to want to handle this a little bit differently. There are going to be different thoughts about where we should be pooling this data from. It goes beyond just their EHR. A lot of them are aggregating data in other warehouses. A lot of them are using CTMS systems in different ways that have different degrees of um, interoperability amongst themselves. So there's a lot of different preference on how this is going to impact the workflow and the architecture at the site level and fires a way to be able to use the same standard to pull from multiple places at multiple points in time depending on where the regulations fall and what sites prefer. Absolutely. And it's, um, first of all, I want to thank you guys for, for coming on to the show and just helping us debrief from the interview that we had with Amy. And I'm always struck in the healthcare industry by just how many acronyms actually exist, right? Like it's it's crazy when we start to talk about standards and technology. There's no shortage of them. But um, this or e-source effort is is really fascinating, and I'm glad that you guys could join us and provide some additional insight into just the effort and where it is and some of the challenges that exist. So thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much. This was awesome. All right, so it's time to wrap up this episode and move on to our parting thought. It is that thing that we've either seen, read, or heard that we would like to share with you. And Ryan, do you mind if I go first? I don't mind at all. Okay, so um, 
we were talking about EHRs in this discussion, and my parting thought is an article that was published by Kaiser Health News entitled, Death by a Thousand Clicks, Where Electronic Health Records Went Wrong. Uh, the article, I thought, provided an interesting evaluation on the growth of the electronic health record industry as part of the digital revolution. Uh, since 2010, the U.S. government has um, sunk approximately $36 billion into the effort to create what they would envision as an electronic health ecosystem. And the article really contends that um, currently the nation's thousands of EHRs remain this sprawling and really disconnected set of technologies that are actually not advancing the goal of creating an interconnected ecosystem for data sharing. And it also highlights some of the risk that that presents when it comes to care delivery. I thought it was just a timely article given the fact that we were talking about this and we were talking about data exchange and, and how to get more efficient. So check it out if you get a chance. Um, my, my parting thought is similar insofar as it connects to what we just talked about around clinical research. Uh, you can find this article actually anywhere. Uh, I found it on the Cleveland Clinic site, but you can also find this, what I'm about to talk about, in Becker's and lots of news um, outlets. But if you didn't hear, there was a, there was a baby girl born um, at Cleveland Clinic a little differently than most baby girls are born. She was the first baby in North America to be delivered by a mother who received a uterus transplant from a donor. And not just a donor, but a deceased donor. Um, so, so in Europe, there are a handful of folks that have, or a handful of mothers that have had a uterus transplanted into their body to have babies. This is the first one. It was part of a pretty monumental clinical trial that happened with, clinical, with Cleveland Clinic. And um, the transplantation of the uterus into the woman is a very complex procedure. It had not been successful in the last generation. And through this clinical trial, um, they have completed five uterus transplants. Um, three of the mothers have become pregnant, and one was just born recently. So the power of clinical trials, clinical research, in some kind of new approach uh, that Cleveland Clinic took is, uh, is, is really fascinating to me. And you can read the article and actually read the process on how research paved the way for that to happen in any one of those articles. That's so fascinating. Um, so this marks the end of today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in to this episode of High Five. For links to the resources discussed in this episode, or to subscribe to the podcast, or connect with the Dynamic team to help you with some of your healthcare initiatives, please visit us at Dynamic.com. Uh, thank you for your time today, and we look forward to sharing more information on the healthcare industry in our next episode. Have a great day.